this morning. So excited. I want to wish you a happy Easter weekend kickoff. Is that the way we do it? Happy Good Friday. Um, we're going through the seven last words of Jesus on the cross this morning, and I'm very uh, excited because uh, we have family in the house this morning. Good to see our aunt and uncle and cousins and uh, our my mother-in-law and father-in-law, and everyone's here this weekend, so we're welcome, welcoming them. And, and this little guy uh, is uh, my Uncle Bobby. Uh, can you see the res- resemblance? It's actually Cecilia's uncle. And uh, he is a pastor in California. He's been in California since 99. So it's going on 20 years uh, pastoring there and originally from the Philippines. And you also lived in England, Europe. Several countries in Europe, and he's pastoring, and he's here to bless us. And we're going to do something that we've never done before, which is kind of a tag team preaching. So we don't know how it's going to work out. Um, But we just want to welcome Uncle Bobby this morning, and and he's also going to be here with us on Sunday. Amen? Amen. Why don't I just pray once again. Father, this morning... Uh, would you help us, God, to uh, center our hearts on you, whatever we've been facing in the past days or weeks, Lord, that we would just uh, let it all go for a moment so that we could hear from you. And uh, as we open your word, Lord, about a very sobering event in the life of the church, um, your cross, Lord, help us to see you, Jesus, in all your fullness. And by your Holy Spirit, would you apply what we hear to our lives? We ask this in your name. Amen. Hello. I feel like um, all the cameras. Is this CNN here? (laughs) Like an interview thing. Um, Growing up with family that that was so religious, um, I remember how my grandma... I was born a Lutheran, and I had no choice. But uh, that's not bad news altogether. But I remember how we would uh, celebrate the Good Friday. Like, we have to be quiet. We don't even have to make a noise. Because any real noise noise is considered actually disrespectful. For the day. Well, now I'm born again. <laughs> thank God. So anyway, um, I think differently. Thank God as well for that. Now today, I just want to share the first of the seven last words. Now understand that many Christians today still do not know, and they've been Christians forever, but they don't know the seven last words. How many, honestly, from your heart can say, oh, yeah, I know it, every single one? Now you're amazed, (laughs) yeah? (laughs) So today, promise me one thing, take to heart what we're going to share with you. I remember when I was dying, and all medical explanations, tangible proof, see, that I was going to die. 
evidence was there in front of my family for them to say he has only two hours to live. Clinically, I was dead. And I remember how death at that time was almost like the sweetest thing to happen to me. Because both of my lungs were gone. It was riddled with the valley fever. And valley fever, if you don't know, is basically if it's fungus. The subterranean fungus, but then they do diggings, and I happen to be passing by the place where they have uh, rich... The whole place, literally, is rich with valley fever. And they were doing agriculture as well as construction diggings at that time in November. And once you sniff it, which I did, it goes into your lungs and it vegetates like there's no tomorrow. So it happened in last week of November and by the time it was... And I'm not going to talk about it right now, but all I'm saying to you is experiencing a near-death thing, near-death experience. It's quite an undertaking, especially if your body will pay for it. So today I remember, again, I had four last words that I left with my youngest sister who was there. But Jesus left seven last words, and it all happened, I'd like you to know, just in case you want to know the true reference of the seven last words, in Golgotha, which means skull, where they did the crucifixion. And the first word he said, if we could bring it up, is found in the book of Luke 23. Why don't you write that down so you don't forget? For those of you who would like to be educated, Luke 23, 34, know this by heart. Really know it. A lot of times when we have favorite movies, we remember the lines and we recite it. I think this is more than and much, much better than the lines we remember in any of our favorite movies. So Jesus said, Father, forgive them. I remember in his time, they were all saying to him, how dare you forgive? sins. Only God can do that. And when Jesus was saying that, he was in his earthly form. He was just like us. What was imputed upon him was more than a Herculean task to pay for the sins of everyone. That's quite an undertaking. And so I couldn't help but ask God personally. I said, the word says, he who knew sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I said, although it sounds like a substitutionary situation for me, for you to do that, it's quite something, isn't it? Because if you continue reading it, it says, Father, forgive them. Because when Adam and Eve did something, when they, of course, we all know that, when they transgressed against God, that sin separated them from the presence of God. And the only way God could do it, so he could still communicate with them, was through atonement, 
And atonement is not really canceling everything perfectly well. What Jesus was trying to say here is not just use atonement right here. As I remember, Jesus was the first butcher that ever existed, or God was the first butcher. He had to kill an animal to dress them, and there was that blood sacrifice. Because without the blood, we all know this, there's no forgiveness. The shedding of the blood, no forgiveness of sins. But what everybody could not understand to this day is a lot of people still cannot accept the fact that he is the final sacrifice once and for all. No longer atonement. Atonement is like, to be honest with you, if you analyze it, it's like makeup. I've seen some of the superstars in Hollywood, they show their reality, as in without the makeup. And seriously, you wouldn't even look at them twice. But with the wonders of makeup, which is the equivalent of what we call the word atonement, suddenly they look beautiful, attractive, and you'd like to be swarming around them. Jesus canceled the word atonement. And what he had become for you and I is a once and for all work, which is remission of our sins. That means cancellation, as though you never sinned. That's hard to fathom in your head. And if you read further, it says, for they do not know what they are doing. If you're a murderer and you kill somebody, you will be pardoned for you do not know what you're doing? The statement right there that says you do not know for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus was talking to the Father about those with the age or who are in the age of accountability. If you die before the age of accountability, you have no sin in the eyes of God. That's why children, when they die, and they haven't reached the age of accountability, meaning to say the full knowledge of what is uh, good and evil, they're exonerated. But here, he's talking about people who do not know what they're doing, who are already in full, mature age. He's talking about you and I. A lot of people say, the Jews killed Jesus. No, we killed him. Because that's the only way he could be forgiven. He became the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, as it were. That's what he did. And that's reality, whether you like it or not. A lot of people are denying this. But let me re remind you, the death and resurrection of Jesus, guys, have been denied by so many. There were many, many attempts more than you and I would like to realize. Does it mean it didn't happen? It's like you, Jordan, can you imagine if hundreds of years from now, people are saying you never existed? You never lived. You never died. But does it mean they were right? Think. Because to this day, no one can prove it. Let's go back to the essence of what he has done. Right there, he knew he would be the propitiation for all our sins. He knew about that. The reality of this couldn't really sink into my system until one day a father gave a testimony 
and it happened. It really, really happened. He went swimming with his son. And the son has his best friend. But his best friend, who's been a childhood friend from the beginning, and the father of that righteous boy, knew that his son's best friend is a non-believer, and he was a very good sinner. So they went fishing in the middle of the sea. Suddenly there was something brewed, and that's a real storm. Capsized the, the, the boat, and they were not good swimmers except the dad. And there was only one choice and only one possibility that can happen to save his son or to save the best friend who's an unbeliever. The father looked at the son and the son made a signal. He's there. And in a most painful way, the father had to turn his back on his son and carry the best friend of his son who was a sinner. So by the time they were ashore, the father couldn't help but cry. And this sinner boy came up to me and he said, why did you choose me? And the father in tears looked at him and said, that was the will of my son. Because he had no other message to me all the time. But dad, I'll do anything. I'll give up my life just to get that friend of mine. Become a Christian. Become a believer. Imagine yourself right now. And that was the that's the only that's the only child. And it reminded me so much how the father of only one beloved son, one. And he had to make a choice. Let him go to the death of the most despicable death. The death of a criminal. I asked God personally, I said, Jesus, I said, so if you were made sin, that means you were a prostitute? And he said, yeah. I said, wait, you're a murderer? A conniver? A liar? And everything? And he said, yes. Imagine the shock in my system. But he had to take that. If you understand the practice, in the Old Testament, they call it a scapegoat, where all the sin of the whole Israel will be imputed upon the animal. I'd like you all to know, that's just an animal, and it hurts so much to look at it, deeply. But what about this one, who was sinless? The only son of the father who made all of us to become sin on our behalf. That's why he had the right to say, for 
forgive them. Because right now, even if they committed all those things, I'm taking on the punishment that they may become yours and eventually ours. I leave those words with you. And I want you to imprint this in your heart indelibly. Don't you ever forget that. He forgave you. Now think, if God will forgive you, who has the power to say you're not forgiven? Take that seriously. Luke 23, 43 reads this. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' words here come in response to the pleas of the penitent criminal that was crucified next to him. Capture this moment. Here Jesus faced suffering on many fronts and in many forms. Physically, he was beaten and flogged with a Roman, it's called a flagrum. The flesh of his back raked open. Keep in mind, this form of torture was considered so painful and so humiliating and so debasing that Roman citizens were exempt from it. More than that, Jesus was struck. His beard was ripped out. They placed the crown of thorns upon him and pressed it into his forehead. They drove nails into the nerve centers of his wrists and his feet, which held him up on a Roman cross. Crucifixion was the ultimate method of execution. For it was as humiliating as it was torturous. It was a spectacle of open shame, unlike anything the world has ever seen. Isaiah 52, 14 says this, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. It's, it's basically saying that, that Jesus was physically beaten to the point where he no longer looked human. Not only physically, but Jesus suffered verbally. He was abused by those who jeered at him. Even a criminal next to him taunted him. We read in the preceding verses, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Church, take a moment to think on his suffering, his enemies calling for his death, his closest friends denying him and fleeing the scene. He was despised and rejected and betrayed into the hands of his captors by one of his own disciples. Not only physically, not only verbally, but Jesus suffered emotionally from the lack of faith in who he is and all that he had said and done to encourage faith in God. 
And yet in the midst of the multifaceted suffering, there is a moment of respite to respond to the penitent. The other criminal rebuked the first and said, don't you fear God? He said, since you and I are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And turning to Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We learn from the Gospels that one of the only things that amazed Jesus was a declaration of faith. Faith moved him, attracted him, impressed him, and even here from the cross, writhing in pain, broken beyond recognition, forsaken from every angle, and yet the faith-filled words of the penitent criminal infuses Jesus with the strength to lift his voice in response. With all clarity and certainty and matter-of-factness, Jesus turns to him and says, Truly, I say to you, today... You will be with me in the paradise of God. Even to lift himself on the cross, it would have been painful. Never mind to speak. One commentator signaled that while being crucified, it would have been an absolute anguish to speak. And yet here, in his selflessness, Jesus can't help but respond to the faith from the cross. And today, Jesus responds to the faith of you and I. He's attracted to it. When we take that step of faith and say, Jesus, I believe and I trust, watch him respond to you. The third one. What was the first one again? Okay, what's the second one? Today. Not tomorrow. Now. Many times God even said in his word, salvation is now. And who's trying to delay us all the time, but you know, the enemy of our soul. Well, who else would he delay? Remember, Jesus warned us about him, how he came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I don't know why people are still making allegiance with him. You can be stupid. I hope to God you cannot be dreadfully stupid. The third one is an important one. You know, in this life, we don't just live for ourselves. Do you mind looking at your neighbor and saying, you live for God? Look at them right now. You tell them, you live for God. You live for God. Because we forget that. I had a privilege, Pastor, I want you to know this has really happened to me, of taking care of my mother the last six years of her life. I took it as 
a responsibility very seriously. And today, when I was reading this, I said, in my own words, OMG, this is what Jesus said. He cared about his mother, earthly mother. In their tradition in those days, the eldest is always the one, the eldest son, to take care of the mother if the father dies. Joseph died at an early age. And imagine the burden on Jesus because he had brothers and sisters. And now the full weight of it is on him. Imagine him, actually, I'd like you to know he was a very good son. He didn't leave his mother alone at the age of accountability. He left his mom to do the ministry, the work of his dad, Heavenly Father I'm talking about, at the age of 13, don't you think he had served his family well enough by then? And then finally, he could do the ministry. But on his hour where he knew that he was going to die, he was still thinking of his mother, Mary. That's how serious Jesus was as a man, as a son, and as a savior. Remember Mary saying, my soul that magnifies my savior, which is part of the Magnificat. When she learned that she was going to carry the savior of the world. But Mary, witnessing this, and then John the Beloved, comforting the two. There was another Mary there, the two ladies beside him. And Jesus, looking down at him, he looked at his mom, and he said, oh, sorry, his, his, uh, John the Beloved, he looked at him, and he said, to behold the mother, and also Mary, to behold the son, meaning to say, she is officially now your ministry. <sighs> Probably that was me. I would say, no, no, that, that, don't die yet. We did not talk about this. How sweet of you to mention this now in front of this, you know. And I thought about that many, many times and I said, he had other siblings. Why did he charge them to do it? Why? You want to know why? There was one time when Jesus' family came in while he was ministering. And the crowd informed him, said, your mom and your siblings are here. And, and Jesus stopped and he said, who are my mothers? Who are my brothers? And the message was, it is they who do the will of my father. Fancy he would choose John the beloved, the real lover. By the way, if you and I are thinking that John was a bit of a weak character, you're 100% wrong. The guy was a brute. He really was. And he was very strong in everything. 
But Jesus knew his heart would really take good care of Mary. So of all mankind, he had to choose him. Because he was the most responsible one. Jesus was made the caregiver of the mother. But when he had to die on a cross, he had to pass on the baton to the most responsible person called John, the beloved. You think of these things. It happened to me. When I was dying in the hospital, I spoke to my sisters. That's one of the four words I gave to my sister. Take good care of mom. Because I don't know how long this will take. I remember that. But I did tell my sister. Because mom would spend time in, in uh, at that time she wasn't a resident of the United States yet. So she would travel between Canada and uh, the U.S. And she would stay six months with me. And mom was just probably in the second month or third month when that happened to me, which I will speak about on Sunday. Guys, you are your brother's keeper. You know what's so painful, and let me be honest with you, is some ministers do this, and I don't like this. And I'm telling you the truth, I don't like it. And it is even practice in the Old Testament. I remember Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. And he said, and the priest at that time said, you excuse yourselves? You exonerate yourselves from your moral responsibility of taking care of your parents? And the dirtiest excuse you would give is that's considered korban. Just in case they're still young. And remind them, it's their duty. Okay? Matthew 27, 46 reads this. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. Which means, my God... My God, why have you forsaken me? We acknowledged Jesus' suffering. And here is yet another angle of his anguish. This time we do not consider neither his physical pain nor the verbal abuse that was hurled upon him. But here we consider the very abandonment of his Father, Almighty God. Capture this moment. In that darkness on the cross, with the sins of the world laid upon him to pay the full penalty of sin, Jesus subjected himself to be removed from the very presence of God. He did this so that we would never have to be without the presence of God. 
Never without his peace, never without his joy, never without his love, never without his assurance, his comfort, his grace, his truth, his fullness, all because Jesus was separated for us. And now he is to us, Emmanuel. Now and forevermore. All because of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, God's Son, was forsaken for us on our behalf. The great exchange, our sin, our penalty, He paid with His life and shed His blood. And in that moment, He was abandoned by God. Here Jesus understood His life to be the fulfillment of the Word of God. He cries out the same abandonment that was foreshadowed in the 22nd Psalm. His pain of loss is beyond what can be fathomed. All this happened at the ninth hour, which is about what we call 3 p.m. Interestingly, one commentator makes note that this was the exact time, the usual time, that the Passover lamb was slain. I was... I visited the hospital of Markham Stouffville the other day on, uh, on Wednesday uh, in the afternoon. And I, I just went into the emergency because I needed to get an x-ray for something, seeing a specialist. Um, it's nothing serious. It's just uh, my finger got hurt while I was playing ball the other few weeks back. It's no big deal. But I'm in the emergency, and I'm just observing and people watching. And uh, obviously, my case isn't serious. And there was one boy in front of me, along with his parents, and he was being carried by his father. And he couldn't have been more than eight or nine years old. And he was writhing in pain. And yelling at the top of his lungs. And just by looking, I couldn't see uh, what really was wrong with him. I, didn't, I, I wasn't able to discern it. And he was going through the, uh, the triage. And then, because he was getting an x-ray as well, we ended up, I ended up following him kind of every step of the way. And we ended up in the same room. And so I actually got to see his x-ray and kind of overhear what was going on with him each step of the way. And I was just praying that God would ease his pain. It turns out that he, he fell at school and he had a dislocated elbow. And uh, a lot of kids, it's kind of common that they would get like a pulled elbow and the doctors can just kind of pop it back in and it's not. But this was actually dislocated and on the x-ray was separated. And the human body is really amazing that if something is just a, a smidgen, this is how much a smidgen is. This is the international amount of smidgen. If something is just a smidgen off, it, it's, it's incredibly painful. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And the, um, the attendant was saying it's, it's actually better if we can put him under because, uh, you know, this kind of putting the, the elbow back in place is a little bit complicated and and uh, we want to make sure we get it right. And we don't want him to be moving and, and everything like that when we're trying to adjust him properly. And my heart just went out to him. And then I got passed through. And I don't know how it all worked out for him. It was a delicate procedure. And I remember the cries of this young boy could be heard throughout the halls and the rooms. 
of the hospital. And even though this was observing an incredibly painful injury, yet what Christ experienced on the cross was ineffable. There are no words to fully describe it. Jesus suffered the wrath of God. I know of no greater torment than to be separated from the presence of God. Separation from God is the very essence of hell. That relationship that he had with his father, he willingly was separated and removed himself from the presence of God so that you and I would no longer need to be separated from God's presence. We don't need to be anymore separated, but because of what Jesus has done, we can be reconciled in relationship to God by faith in what Christ has done for us. And now we have access to the full presence of God where there is fullness of peace and joy and love and provision. The Spirit of God is the provision of His presence. To recall this every year, the seven last words, and to explain it to people over and over and over and over again, and still find out that it's not sinking in. It's such a frustrating pain. But what else would you do but give back to God? He's a champion of heaven. And here we are, presenting it to you again. That's how good you guys are. So, uh, reminding me of how much of a proof that Jesus was a mankind. I don't like using the word human. He was a mankind. He was like you and I. That when the full dehydration and everything was happening, you do become very thirsty. And that was written in John nineteen twenty eight. Again, write this down just in case you don't know it yet. By heart, that is. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, Jesus did this to fulfill. Again, every single step of the way to fulfill the will of the Father. To fulfill the scripture. He did nothing that is not scriptural. And he said, I thirst. Uh, studying this, by the way, if you're being crucified by the Roman army, they relieve you from unbelievable pain. And they would give you wine mixed with myrrh. Because myrrh in itself is a pain reliever. So Jesus said, I thirst, hoping that he would get wine and myrrh. But the foolish guys gave him instead wine and vinegar. That's not funny. But he experienced that. 
And yet you didn't hear him complaining. Hey guys, that's unfair. I'm dying here. And you're giving me something. We have a bougie God, okay? Real bougie. If you don't know that term, by the way, you're getting too old. We have a top class God. A chic God. He died with majesty. And when he was dying on the cross, he was still full of majesty. You and I think that he had this wonderful little bit of a covering here. No, he was totally naked. Very embarrassing. We have a sophisticated cross that we see. That wasn't his case. Everything was exposed. And I'm going to come towards that in the end. Let me just tell you, though, that he became thirsty. And instead of them giving him something to relieve himself from all the pains he was going through, which were all legitimate, they gave him something that is contradictory. John 19.30 reads this. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, John records that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. It's done. Jesus fully completed the work. His work, his mission, his earthly ministry, everything that the scriptures had foretold according to all of the Father's will, Jesus faithfully completed it all. He remained faithful even to the very end. John records this saying as the last words of Jesus. With it, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit because John couldn't even encapsulate into words what it meant for Jesus to give up his spirit. Just that he bowed his head. What does this tell us about what was happening in the mind of Christ? We can see from this verse that Jesus, even to his last moments, fully understood the purpose in the cup of suffering that he was to drink. He fully knew the fullness of the work of the cross, and that he was ultimately to give his life to make possible the salvation of all those who trust him. The rescue of humanity required the ultimate sacrifice. All that was left to pay was the ultimate wages of sin. And we know that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. What does it mean to say that it is done? It means the victory is won. It means that despite the toils and snares of this life, despite the challenges and trials, despite all the difficulties, it means the battle is the Lord's and it means the victory has been won. It's done. One commentator says this, it is finished. The sufferings and agonies in redeeming man are over. The work long contemplated, long promised, long expected by prophets and saints is done. The toils in the ministry, the persecutions and the mockeries and the pangs of the garden and the cross are ended. And man 
is redeemed. What a wonderful declaration was this. How full of consolation to man. And how should this dying declaration of the Savior reach every heart and affect every soul? Turn to your neighbor and say, it's done. You guys are very quiet here, aren't you? We go wild somewhere else, okay? Um, I, no, no, I noticed that when I was, uh, I just got back from um, Guadalajara, Mexico. We ministered to a lot of people. And can you imagine I was ministering the whole week? And you know how, you know how wild Pentecostals are. So anyway, so when the Spirit of God gets hold of me, I will not respect anybody. I just give him a go, okay? Like, yeah, yeah, Lord, and more, yeah. So anyway, little did I know in the end that the guy who was in charge of us, both of them who toured us in different places, and maybe one day I will get a chance to explain to you what happened. They were Baptists. No wonder they were looking at me like in awe. I'm not joking. Not in judgment, but in they never thought it was going to happen. That's when God gets hold of you. Now, Jesus, at the end, and the last one, let me review again. What's the first one? How many have memorized that so far? Okay, forgive them. Second one, today you will be with me in paradise. Third one, hey, take care of the mom, okay, son, take care of the mother, you know. And the fourth one? Eh? Okay, why have you for a second? The fifth one? I thirst. And the sixth one? Now, I'd love to say that was really final. But I want you all to know Jesus had to do something else. And that is, it says, he called out with a loud voice. And that's the last word. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. How vital is that? How powerful is that? You and I think that we just happen. You're nuts if you still continue thinking that way. Because the scripture is quite clear. Unequivocally, it said, the spirit of a man comes from God. Now, if you still don't know that, I don't know. I'm not going to say it faster. I don't know what church you go to. So anyway, so, no, you don't. but anyway, you should know that by now. And Jesus was exemplifying it. And he said, you can torture my body. Do whatever you want to do with me. My soul included. Because he could still feel the pain. And one of them, he said, I first, yeah. But the final one is, he said, my spirit is in the hands of the Father. Because he will have to resolve the whole situation, weigh everything. He just trusted the Father that he would know what to do. You and I today are so blessed beyond measure. Because what you don't realize 
is the same Holy Spirit. And this will happen on Sunday. And so I'm reserving this quite a lot. That resurrected Jesus from the dead. Is now in you. That's it in me. Let's give God a big, big hand for that. Okay? He deserves that. Ah, but let's talk about the spirit that Jesus had to commit to the Father. For the final time, let me announce this to the whole world. You cannot kill the spirit of God. There's just no way it can die. Live it. The spirit lives on. End of story. Some may claim that after this life, that's the end of everything. You're a fool if you believe that. You know, I had a privilege of traveling and experiencing heaven for about two and a half months. And nothing but fun, which I will tell you another time. But let me guarantee you, the spirit of Jesus that he turned over to the Father. That was eternal. And that still is eternal. 